It's time for Cadillac on Call on News Radio 610 KONA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac on Call, here's Jim Hall. Good day, friends. Welcome to Cadillac on Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation. We come on the air today with the calendar turn to the month of December. And with a new month comes a new COVID variant to be concerned with. It's called Omicron. Today's program will get the latest on the Omicron variant, current case rates in our region, and prospects for keeping the virus under control as we move through the holiday season. Later in our program, how the pandemic has affected our youngest population. We'll visit with the manager of Catholic's neonatal intensive care and pediatrics units. First, we welcome to the program Heather Hill, the Communicable Disease Program Manager at the Benton Franklin Health District. And Heather, it seems uh, the airing of our program each week is very timely, as it often coincides with brand new developments in the COVID pandemic. Today, that news is confirmation of the first case of COVID in the United States with this new variant. What can you tell us about Omicron and what level of concern we should all have with it? Sure. Thank you, Jim. There's been a lot of... um discussion about this in the scientific community, and we're certainly hearing about it on the news. But at this point in time, we're really hearing a message of um, it's not time to panic. We certainly need to continue using all those mitigation strategies that we've been talking about throughout the whole pandemic. We've seen um, other variants come and go, such as the mu variant that appeared last spring, and there certainly was some concern with that. But by September, it had really dropped off, um, and we don't see that anymore because really that Delta variant kind of took over, and, and that is predominantly what we're seeing right now. So at this point, I think it's very important for us to listen to what the scientific community is saying, the ongoing testing, for the stereotypes, for the different types that are out there all over the world. Washington State has one of the most robust testing um, programs for the different variants. And so we are, you know, lucky as a state, we're kind of on the cutting edge of information because of all the testing that's done and looking at the different variants. So, you know, the message today is, yes, we fully expected it to arrive in the United States at some point in time. Like we have many of the other variants that have come through, but um, how to predict what it's going to do at this point in time is, is, is very difficult. It appears that it might be a little bit more transmissible than, say, Delta, but we're not sure about disease. Does it cause a more severe disease? Will it suddenly take over like Delta did? We really can't predict it at this point. Um, you know, the medical scientists are certainly looking at uh, how well our current vaccines will protect us. There is an expectation that there will be um, a level of protection from our current, with our current vaccines that should protect us against this variant as well. But um, they'll certainly be doing some testing and looking closely at that. They're also saying that the companies that develop vaccine, the the good thing about the mRNA vaccines is they're relatively quick to produce. This new technology really does speed up the time uh, that vaccines take to actually produce what is needed in that vaccine. And, um, you know, certainly looking to if the vaccines need to be changed 
uh, drug companies are certainly looking closely at that and if that need arises or not. Could you maybe take a minute, if you would, to just step back a little bit and explain to our listeners, and especially me, uh, just what is a variant and why that is so concerning uh, relative to the pandemic? You know, in, in my world of communicable diseases, and especially working with viruses, they tend to mutate. Some viruses that cause disease are very, very stable, like hepatitis B virus. It's very stable. It doesn't mutate particularly. But then you get um, viruses like influenza, and that's the one we're most familiar with. For years and years and years, we always look to the new flu season to say, well, what does flu look like this year? What is it going to appear um like in our community, is the vaccine going to match what is circulating in our community? And we actually start looking all around the world to see, you know, especially the Southern Hemisphere, where their flu season comes first, we look to see, well, what does the virus look like down in the Southern Hemisphere? And that drives a bit of how vaccines are produced for influenza for the, the seasonal flu. We know every year, that vaccine has to be tweaked to match what is the most likely types of flu virus that are floating around. It appears, and we kind of expected COVID to act the same way, that it does mutate easily, it does mutate quickly, and the anticipation was let's get a vaccine on board that is going to work very, very well, but also understanding that as we move through many, many more years of dealing with COVID, there will come a time likely that the vaccine will have to be tweaked to match new variants as they appear. And if we find evidence that the current vaccine isn't covering us as well. So what you're saying is similar to the flu each year, the the type of vaccine that is given for the flu for say 2021 might be different from 2020, 2019, et cetera. And the same as we move forward with COVID, in the years to come, that the type of vaccine that may be required might be different than what we're currently getting today. You're exactly right, and and that's something we're very used to in in my world of, of communicable diseases and vaccine-preventable diseases, knowing that especially with influenza and now COVID, because it does change, because it does mutate, um, it's anticipated that vaccines will need to also be changed and altered to uh, make sure we're getting the best protection possible for us. For people listening to this program, how should they react when they hear this word Omicron? I know it gets kind of, oh my gosh, not another one of these variants. Yeah, here we go again, another variant. I think, first of all, it's important to understand that our scientific community all around the world is doing an excellent job of looking closely at how this virus is changing, how the changes are affecting us, and if we need to make any uh, adjustments in how we're conducting our lives. So I I think that's important to understand, first of all. Second of all, um, we're hearing loud and clear that, again, this is not a time to panic. It's another variant that is coming through that we need to watch and be vigilant. We need to continue to use all those mitigation strategies with one of the very most important strategies being vaccination because uh, it is anticipated at least this point in time what we know is is there is some protection against this Omicron variant. 
So getting vaccinated is certainly important, and getting your boosters is even more important um, now that we're seeing this, this potential variant of concern come through. So with Omicron, then, the fact that it's coming during a time of the year where historically we saw this time of the year with holidays, gatherings, colder weather and the like, where we might see an increase in cases, uh, the timing of this probably isn't the best. But as you say, uh, you know, let's continue with, with what's been working. Right. Let's just keep doing what's working and um, and continue to listen to what the scientific community has to, to say to us with all the research that they're doing and the studying that they're doing. They're the ones that really guide us um, because they have the knowledge. They have the tools to tell us what needs to happen. One more question on this topic on the Omicron, and you touched on the the capabilities that the state of Washington has in its detections of these variants. I understand uh, this surfaced initially in South Africa, but I also understand from what I was reading that how it got um, transmitted or how it got detected, I guess I should say, their public health experts and scientific experts got this very early, and so they have very sophisticated te- uh, evaluation me- measures to really pass along to the rest of the world? Yeah, much like we do here in Washington State. You know, again, um, Washington State is very lucky because we do have um, some of the best sequencing technology in the nation right here in our home state. So it's very much similar to um, why they were able to find it in South Africa is because they have some very good technology. They were watching, they were being vigilant, and they, and they found this, um, this uh, variant of, of interest. Visiting with Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. When we come back, we'll get into the vaccination updates and the boosters and all of that discussion on what we should all know as we move through the month of December and head toward the Christmas holiday. We'll talk more with Heather right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Catholic on Call, presented by the Catholic Foundation. We return to our visit with Heather Hill of the Benton Franklin Health District. And Heather, we have been wary of the holiday season signaling an increase in cases. I suppose probably too early to tell a little bit right now, but what is our current case rate? And as we get ready uh, three weeks out from Christmas, uh, where where do we stand right now? Well, we're standing, uh, again, pretty good situation. Um, again, our case rates are looking better. Um, let's see. In um, Benton County, right now, we're at 174 per 100,000 over the last 14 days. Franklin County is at 172 um, per 100,000 over the last 14 days. So once again, we've trended down, which is a good place to be. The CBC West test site has processed over 3,900 tests in the past 14 days with a 9% positivity rate. And the walk-up clinic in Richland has completed over 1,000 tests in the last 14 days. So, um, yeah, number of people getting tested is certainly dropping off a little bit, but they're still obviously very active with 3,900 and 1,000 people coming in to getting tested at these various sites. So... Um, We're trending in the right direction, but again, uh, certainly cautious coming out of Thanksgiving and looking back to what has happened historically um, 
you know, in the next couple of weeks, we would expect to, that's where we'd start to see that, that spike in, in total numbers. And then that backs right up into Christmas, where we start to see more gatherings. And so the next, you know, month, month and a half are going to be very interesting to look at the data. We'll get to the issue of vaccinations in a moment, but uh, stay on the, the topic of testing. People that are traveling, as you have touched on, and gathering during the Thanksgiving holiday and upcoming to Christmas, is that all the more reason to, to get tested more frequently uh, if you're in those traveling modes and gathering modes? Right. It, it's another one of those mitigation strategies. So if you have been traveling or if you've been at a, a family gathering, you know, in a few days after you get back is a really good time to just go in and get tested because we find a lot of people may not have uh, symptoms or the symptoms could be very mild and they could just explain it that I'm tired, I'm feeling run down, I have a little seasonal allergy, but then find out, no, they actually have COVID. And knowing that they're COVID positive gives them the information they need to stay home and to quarantine themselves, to stay away from others. And that's where that say yes um, to COVID home test uh, program that we rolled out a few weeks ago is so important. You know, you can get these test kits in your home. They can be there ready for you to use when you get back from a trip, when you've taken a flight somewhere, come back plan to have your whole family tested in the privacy of your own home. It's a rapid antigen test. And then retest a couple of days later. And what we're finding is people um, really appreciate that knowledge. It allows them to relax a little bit more and not be concerned. Am I exposing people? Did I catch something on that trip that could be putting somebody else at risk? So those test kits are still readily available. You can go on that website, say yes, covidhometest.org, or if you don't have access to uh, ability to order them online, they are now available at all the Mid-Columbia Library branches. So you can go into those and get some test kits there. So we're trying to make sure there are multiple ways for people to access these in the community. Move on now to boosters, if we could. And I know there's been so much emphasis on just getting people to initiate vaccinations, but now with the evidence of the Omicron virus, uh, now or the variant now on our in our midst, uh, there's also been the go ahead for everyone to get their their boosters. What's your advice? Uh, so anybody 18 and older, I think it is, should go ahead and get that booster right away as soon as possible. Right. The Center for Disease Control did announce on November 29 that they are recommending that anybody 18 and older should just go ahead and get the booster shot now. We do have plenty of vaccine um, in our community and across the nation, and this is a really great time to go ahead and get boosted. You know, I think I had to, kids are at college, they're mixing more than they did when colleges were on virtual learning and so you're going to have your kids coming home for the holidays you know encourage them to get vaccinated while they're at college so they're less likely to pick something up on their way home and and bring it home or come home and catch it and then take it back to school with them but you know time is of the essence it's going to be really important that people get vaccinated now get their boosters now knowing that it can take a couple of weeks for that immunity to kick in And with this Omicron um, variant of concern that 
obviously is appearing in the United States. Like you said, that is even more reason to go out and get your boosters. Let's get our, our immunity up to as high as possible to protect us from whether it's Omicron or Delta. Um, you just really need to get that protection boosted. Want to take a minute and share you the latest vaccination rates within our state. The state of Washington, the percent of the total population that is vaccinated is 62 percent. In Benton County, that number is 51 percent. Franklin County, 46 percent. And Walla Walla County sits at 55 percent. And interestingly, if you combine the rates of Benton, Franklin and Walla Walla counties, it's right at 50 percent of the percent of total population that has been vaccinated with both doses. So progress is being made. But again, uh, with this variant lingering, the time of the year that we are in, all the more reason to go ahead and get either the booster or initiate that vaccine, right? That's that's absolutely right. And, you know, especially with the holidays coming on, get that booster now. We are seeing really good results when people go in and get that booster um, we've heard, you know, of course, some people say, yes, I got sick. But remember, just because you feel a little bit under the weather after that booster, you might be achy, a little feverish, your arm might be sore. Again, that's the reminder to you that your immune system is waking up. It is responding. It is reacting. But even if you don't have those reactions after you get your shot or your booster, it doesn't mean your immune system didn't notice. Everybody responds differently. Some people have a vigorous response. Other people have a very minor response. Your immune system is still working and still um, creating protection against the COVID virus. And if you would, I understand there's now an opportunity for folks uh, to take advantage of or participate in a bit of a more study relative to this. And there's a statewide, I think it is, uh, survey that's being announced or that it's available for people. Tell us a little right. bit about that. Right, it's called the, the WAVE Survey, and it's through um, University of Washington Medicine, the Washington State Department of Health, and it, it's a really kind of interesting study where they're looking at, they would like to get 8,000 people in Washington State to participate where they would do swabs to see at that moment, do you have uh, COVID in, in your nose, do you have it there? And then do blood testing as well to see what your immune response is being. Do you have antibodies? What level of antibodies? And then they would um, hopefully retest a couple of more times and see if there's any changes in that antibody level in your blood. But it's uh, for those of you in the community who love to participate in research and feel like you're part of something big and and a solution and scientific information, what an exciting way to to get involved. And there is a little bit of a monetary incentive as well if you sign up. So um, you can volunteer to participate at the WAVE survey.org and that will get you into the website that has all the information about who's eligible, how to sign up and participate. And they're really hoping to get people particularly in in this part of Washington state. It's not just the west side. They want information from the east side of the state too. So I encourage people to go check out that website and consider participating. As usual, very timely information from Heather Hill at the Benton Franklin Health District. Again, that survey is with thewavesurvey.org. And also, if you'd like to order or pick up some free home testing kits, 
Go to sayyestocovidtest.org as well. Thanks to Heather Hill. Back with the second half of Catholic on Call in a moment. Listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Here again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Cadillac on Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation. COVID has taken its toll on virtually every sector of our population. And that includes our youngest population. Catholic Regional Medical Center has the region's only neonatal intensive care unit, which is an ICU for seriously ill babies, often born prematurely. And today we're grateful to have with us on our program the manager of Catholic's NICU, as it's called, as well as the pediatrics unit at Catholic. Anna Robel. And Anna, first of all, thanks for taking the time to be with us. And maybe before we get into how COVID has impacted your world with the youngest of our population, maybe just give our listeners a little bit of a overall perspective. Just what is an NICU? Sure. Thanks, Jim, for having me. I really appreciate it. You know, um, NICU, as we like to call it, is uh, just something I think no family really expects or wants. We have new moms and dads come in through the door um, looking to uh, have the happiest, um, most wonderful time of their lives and most memorable, and it turns out um, to be kind of a traumatic and and really, really scary experience for them. So um, being in an ICU is not something anybody, you know, unless they had some prenatal complications that they're aware of. Um, so when we get moms and dads through the door, um, they're really scared and, and really feeling helpless and, um, you know, that there's just not a lot that they can do. And a neonatal ICU is there just to support these infants. And it can be for a myriad of reasons. We have babies that are here with us for prematurity. Um, so anywhere less than a typical gestation, which is about 40 weeks for full gestation. So a lot of times it's, you know, our 37, 35 weekers down to, you know, the edge of viability, which is about 22, 23 weeks gestation. Um, they can come in for respiratory distress. I mean, we're going from a fluid-filled um, amniotic sac to um, breathing air. So there's a lot of complications that can happen in that transitional period. Um, sometimes babies come to us for sepsis or infection or hypoglycemia. Um, there's just, you know, the miracle of life is so wonderful that sometimes um, our babies just need a little bit of extra help. So um, that's what we do. We're there to help and support our little families and our little babies and, and help them transition to extra uterine life and um, in any way that they may need, whether that be medication or respiratory support um, or, you know, a myriad of, of different things, fluids and nutrition. So, And I was going to say, NICUs are, are, are fairly common these days, but I know Cadillacs is a, a regional provider, so you get patients from all over eastern right. Washington and northern Oregon. But I think Cadillacs unit right. is a, coming up on nearly 40 years of, of being that provider. So a lot of families have been impacted in a way uh, positively uh, by this expertise that, that we have available here. 
yeah, we're we're really really um, lucky to have Cadillac in the the level three um, NICU in our um, in our community here, and and we're really really honored to serve um, this region in a big big way, and and keep kids closer to home. Um, that's really really important for us, and um, you know we can provide the highest of acuity care at Cadillac, um, which would include even uh, whole body cooling, which is a newer program that uh, we implemented, I'd say about two years ago, if I remember correctly. Um, and, you know, that, that would be with any kind of perinatal depression or, you know, time that a baby was down without without blood flow um, and oxygen is, is sometimes treated with whole body cooling. So um, that's wonderful now that we can provide that service for our community. Um, and we can provide services for, you know, any gestation pretty much. Um, so, yeah, it's it's an honor to take care of our community, and we're really lucky to have uh, this facility and uh, NICU in our, in our community here in the Tri-Cities. And you touched on it, the fact that shock and, and these emotions that families experience when their baby has to spend time in an NICU and and I guess you contrast a, 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 a normal, in quotes, birth experience where a, fa- a mom and a family might spend a, a day or two in the hospital where sometimes mm-hmm. these NICU patients and families, they're in there for, you know, weeks, if not Lunch. a few months. And mm-hmm. that means the, mm-hmm. the families, uh, they, ne- they can't necessarily be there full time. But uh, so that, that hardship and that, that contrast is just incredible. Right. Yeah. We, they become family to us. I mean, it's, it's hard not to get attached to not only our little ones, but our moms and dads that come day after day. Um, you know, and then the struggle is different for every family. You know, there's different dynamics. We've got families that live, like you said, you know, in Othello, um, that are, that are making these long, long treks. We've got families that live, you know, right here in the community, but, they have five and six siblings at home and, and, and different needs there. And so, you know, every family dynamic is different and every family's level of involvement with their infant is and abilities is different. Um, and especially the longer the time goes on, the harder it becomes for families to be ever present by their baby's side. Every mom and dad wants to be there for their baby. And if, Every single one of our moms and dads could be there 24-7. Every single one of them absolutely would, but it's just not a reality. So um, we really work hard on building rapport and trust and communication with our families so that when they're stepping out the door, they have the utmost confidence that their baby is being taken care of um, and to feel that we're treating their babies like, they would, and that we love them um, the way that they would. So that's something that's really, really important with us is to openly communicate and build trust and rapport that these families, when they do walk out the door, because they can't stay 24-7 um, for months on end, feel confident in the care that they're getting. I was going to have you say on the on the topic of, of the staff, obviously they're incredibly talented and experienced, but the the the... the, the the, the human side of that, and I know just personally, I was with you a week or so ago with uh, a family that had two of their children in the NICU, and they're now 
I think, eight and 10 years old, and it just struck me when we walked through the unit, one of the nursing yeah. staff said, I remember you. Your son's name was this. Yep. And it just, mm-hmm. uh, so so the, the staff really, uh, as you touched on, is key to all of this. Yeah. Yeah, they, it's hard for them, like I said, not to bond with these families. They become family. Um, we have a family support group on Facebook that is, is really, really active. And, you know, recently moms were posting pictures on World Prematurity Awareness Day of their little, you know, 24-weeker and now, you know, kindergartner and the before and after pictures. And it's giving me goosebumps even now <laughs> to just see... Um, just a wonderful transition from this vulnerable, scary, uh, you know, on the verge of of life uh, moments to these growing, thriving, chubby, fat toddlers and <laughs> um, healthy children playing sports and graduating high school. And, you know, one of the fun things about Catholic is we have a ton of longevity. And in our NICU, we have nurses that have been there for 20, 30 years. And so some of these nurses have taken care of kids who are now in their 20s and, you know, going to college. And and, and it's fun to see them come back. It's too bad COVID has ruined some of these things because we had you know, at once upon a time, big plans for reunions, and we I know they've done that in the past, and it's so fun for us to be able to see, um, you know, the end product of, of all the hard work and blood, sweat, and tears that our nurses pour into these babies and families and, and get to see them, you know, grow up and and live happy, healthy lives. So that's a fun part of it. It's fun to hear from those families and to get little visits and to get notes and updates on how they're doing. It's just probably one of the favorite favorite parts of, of our job. Visiting with Anna Robel, the manager of Cadillac's Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, as well as the Pediatrics Unit at Cadillac. We have a few more minutes with her after our next break, but when we come back, we'll talk more on how the COVID impact uh, the NICU here in the Tri-Cities. Back with more right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Once again, Jim Hall. A reminder, if you missed any portion of our program, you can catch Cadillac on Call on your favorite podcast platform. Just search Cadillac on Call wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Continuing our conversation with Anna Robel, the manager of Cadillac's Neonatal Intensive Care Unit. And Anna, if you would, I understand uh, COVID has taken a toll in the NICU as well. Talk a little bit about the challenge uh, that COVID has brought and the types of patients that have ended up in the NICU. Yeah, you know, it's it's a little bit different. And I know we talk a lot about COVID in, in the adult world and, and how that's affecting um, that population. But, you know, it, it is. It does. It's our patients here at Cadillac and um, in some kind of, you know, different ways. Um, we have had some limited visitation for our families that are having babies and I'm really proud of for our visitation, and we really 
did continue throughout the entire pandemic to allow families to to be there for their babies. So we never did shut down um, visitation, although it has continued to be somewhat limited for the safety of our infants. And um, so that's one part is kind of limited visitation just for the safety of the infants. And, you know, one of the hidden things that you and I have kind of talked about that not a lot of people really are talking about is COVID has brought so many stressors in many, many families in our community with job loss and um, and um, isolation and, and different things. So not everybody has the same coping mechanisms. And one of the ways I think that some people are coping is this increased use of opiates. Um, and this opiate use is really on the rise throughout the United States and, and the Tri-Cities and our region is really... Um, not out of that situation either. And also is more pregnant women with opiate use disorder. And because of this, we're having a lot more infants that are being born with symptoms of opiate withdrawal and call withdrawal syndrome. And um, so not every baby that is born with uh, MAUs is admitted to the NICU. As a matter of fact, we really like to keep them with their mom's um, on our birth center so that can um, help with, with the effects of the withdrawal. and um, But at, at times they do need to be admitted to have some pharmacological interventions. And um, so that's that's kind of been um, one of the hidden effects for our neonates has been a, a pretty drastic increase in our, in our admissions of uh, neonates with opiate withdrawal syndrome. And so what, what happens in that case? I know we don't have a ton of time, but briefly, if you could just explain what, what, the, what the treatment is and how do we help these babies? Yeah, and that's a great question, and every situation is a little bit different. Um, when the babies are there, the biggest thing that we're doing is we're monitoring them. Um, we have a new program that we've actually rolled out very recently, and it's called Eat, Sleep, and Console. And this is a, a nationwide program that is utilized by many, many, many NICUs all over the nation that has really, really good outcomes. And, and the goal of our Eat, Sleep, Console is really to score our babies that are dealing with opiate withdrawal on the ability to be a baby. So can this baby eat? Can this baby um, console and can this baby sleep well? And all of these things combined lead us to um, utilizing and maximizing non-pharmacological interventions. So our goal is really to not have to treat them with morphine, which is a kind of our go-to um, treatment for the for each baby. If we can maximize their treat, non-pharmacological treatment, and this would be through um, low stimulation, dim lights, um, really quiet environment, um, consoling them, really keeping them skin to skin with mom, um, swaddling when needed, uh, pacifiers for consoling, feeding them when they're awake and ready to eat, and um, just meeting their every need and um, really making sure that their needs are met. If we cannot maximize those interventions and we do end up needing pharmacological interventions, um, they would be admitted to the NICU. And our goals right now are what we call PRN doses of morphine, so just spot doses 
to treat the baby. And, and if they need that multiple times, we do end up putting them on a schedule of medications. Um, once the babies are treated with morphine, um, again, the, the prevention, um, what we're trying to prevent is for the baby to um, be so uncomfortable and then eventually, uh, you know, they can have the risks for seizures and, and some different types of uh, things that we want to prevent. So we want to get involved early as possible. When we start them on morphine, then we have the necessity to wean them off of that slowly. Um, so it's kind of a, a long process. And once they're started on morphine, um, we do wean their, their morphine down, and that may take days, weeks um, to get them off of the morphine. So it's um, it's difficult for the babies. It's uncomfortable. Um, one of the really neat things that we've also implemented at Catholic is is uh, new is a cuddler program where we have volunteers um, come in and, and and help our parents to console these babies that are dealing with opiate withdrawal. And um, it's kind of been a wonderful benefit. It helps our infants console so that we don't have to treat them as much with the morphine. The less we have to treat them with pharmacological measure, measures, um, the faster they get to go home. And that's better all around. So that's another really exciting part of uh, something that we're doing to help these infants. Well, you should be very proud of your team, all of the team at Catholic, taking care of patients, whether they're days, weeks, months, years, or many, many, many years old. Incredible things happening to take care of keeping people healthy wherever they may be in their life. Anna, thanks so much for taking the time. Great insight as well. Uh, We appreciate that time. And thank you as well to Heather Hill in our first half of our program. And thank you for listening. We'll talk again next Wednesday night.